This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So I'm going to talk about spinal cord injury, which is my passion. Um, I kind of violate all the rules when it comes to talks. I have way too many slides, um, but I like to just show the gamut of spinal cord injury. So I'm going to be going pretty fast through this whole thing, um, and I'm happy to take any questions afterwards. And then you can also talk to me later if you have a burning question. But we're going to try to cover everything that happens in the first four hours of injury, which I would say maybe 20 or 30 years ago was not a whole lot. And things have changed, and we really focused on the ultra-acute management of spinal cord injury. So I'm going to be flying through this, as I said, so prepare to uh, grab on tight. So I'll start out with a case. This is a case probably from about eight or ten years ago, and this is kind of um, just an example of, of all the things that happen in a spinal cord injury patient, and this is just kind of the what we call the initial information we'll talk about at the end and kind of show you kind of where, uh, you know, what changes we've made um, in our management of these patients. So PVA is basically a p- pedestrian versus auto which is a very common occurrence in San Francisco, unfortunately. And this gentleman was uh, struck head-on 35 miles per hour, landing on the hood and windshield. He was what we call hypotensive in the field with a blood pressure of 80 over 30. His heart rate was pretty low, 64 for a trauma patient. And his Glasgow coma scale, which we're not going to talk about here, but basically it was 8 out of a possible 15. He was uh, in the emergency department, also very hypotensive. Um, He was hypothermic at normal temperatures, closer to 37. Um, and his saturation was a little bit down, too. That's normally probably 100% on two liters, and it's down. And he has all these findings as initial examination, hematomas, um, chest decreased breath sounds on the left, um, and he's not moving his lower extremities. Just keep that in the back of your mind. This is kind of a typical, typical presentation um, of a day in uh, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General. So the reason I got into spinal cord injury was that I had an engineering uh, undergrad degree, and I was very interested. One of my last classes... Um, and actually in aerospace engineering was a bioengineering class on, uh, um, and you, you were able to pick a project and what was I interested in. And so the thing that really struck me was why are all these people paralyzed that don't have transection of their cord? So I literally, since that moment, years and years and years ago now, have been fascinated in why people have complete injuries or even incomplete injuries after a, basically a contusion and not a transection of the cord. And this is the same thing that actually interests me. And it's the same thing that they basically do when they put somebody into space, which is they basically design these redundant systems. So there's a lot of redundancy in the spinal cord. And animal models and other models have been shown to basically show that somewhere between 3% and 6% of your axons, those cables that go from your brain down the spinal cord, are needed to walk, only 3 to 6%. So that is my goal. That's the goal of everyone on our team. That's the goal of Dr. Pasquale, that we can somehow preserve 3% to 6% of your neurons, of those axons, and allow people to ambulate, allow people to have bowel or bladder function. And that's been our basically our target from the very beginning. Once again, you see that there's these areas of sparing in the spinal cord, where, yes, this is all blood and hemorrhage, and, yes, there is pressure here with bony displacement, but it's not transected. It's not cut in two. So there, are, there is sparing in the spinal cord. And the reason to, you know, that we're so interested in is that why does the body shut it all down? And what happens after the injury? 
We do know in humans, after a period of time, that you do develop this kind of scar in the middle, uh, but as I said, you do have these spared cables, these spared axons. Sometimes they demyelinate, which is basically the insulation around the, uh, the spinal cord axons, but that happens over time. That doesn't happen initially. So there are processes that cause demyelination. So if we can also inhibit demyelination, that also could be effective. It also could be effective in a whole lot of other neurological diseases, so that's a, a big target. Hasn't been too successful so far. We're trying some things that are, um, you know, more electrically based um, to see if that has any effect on this. Spinal cord controls a lot of things, and we are always looking at the deficits in the emergency department to figure out where we think the level of injury is before we're able to definitively say so. If you have a very high spinal cord injury, you may not be breathing at all, um, somewhere around C1 through C4. If you go down a bit, you find all sorts of um, basically problems. And all the way down to T4, we think that if you injure your spinal cord in this area, you may very easily have something called neurogenic shock. There's a lot of types of shock. You can bleed out, and that's hemorrhagic shock. You can have a massive infection, and that's septic shock. Neurogenic shock is a little bit different. It's basically where the spinal cord can't send the information to your blood vessels to constrict them. And so these patients come in with usually a very low blood pressure. They also sometimes have a low heart rate. The problem is that these are trauma patients and that they can have a low heart rate, um, which also they can actually have a low blood pressure and a low heart rate, but the low blood pressure may be from the bleeding that's occurring somewhere. So we have to figure out, are they bleeding? Do they have two types of shock? And this is what we're trying to do very, very rapidly because we have treatments for neurogenic shock, but they're very, very dangerous if you treat somebody in hemorrhagic shock like they're in neurogenic shock. And then there's bony injury. I always joke with my residents, I'm like, I don't really care about the bones. I just, I just care about the spinal cord. I care about the actual, not even just the spinal cord. I don't care about the gray matter. I care about the white matter. I care about the cables. Um, but my colleagues get very upset about that because they care about the bones, and they spend hours and hours and hours of surgery repairing the bones. And there's a lot of types of fractures you can have. People say broke their back, <laughs> broke their neck. It's a big deal because a lot of these fractures are very unstable. So guess what? If they're not repaired, they can injure the cord in the center. So it's important to take care of the bones. I just don't care about the bones as much as I care about the axons, so don't blame me. Um, we use a system. There's a lot of different systems to score these patients. I'll talk about this system just real briefly, the Asia system. We also use something called the Inski system, but Asia is basically A is a complete injury. There's no sensory or motor function. And the important part about this is that you have no preservation in basically the bowel or the rectal area. And that's very important because that usually means a complete injury. Incomplete is you have no motor function below um, and you have um, basically nothing in the, uh, in the rectum, but you do have a little bit of sensory. C is incomplete and you have motor function, but it's less than grade three out of five, which is basically just anti-gravity. D is basically you have motor function preserved, but you also have a, um, the muscles are weak, but it's more than anti-gravity. And then E is normal. So these are kind of just a gross grading system. You can get to this through a lot of different systems, and there's an actual numerical score that we use that's very, very complicated. But this is important because it tells us a lot about what the prognosis is, especially when we try to find out when this exam, ex examination was done. And that prognosis is that if you are a complete cord lesion in 72 hours, 
most of the literature, and this literature is changing because we're getting better at taking care of spinal cord injury patients, so we're watching these numbers change in real time, but the numbers usually are about 10 to 15%, only 10 to 15% improve. So if you can't feel anything, you have no rectal tone, and you have no, um, and you have no motor function below your injury at 72 hours, only 10 to 15% of those would improve, and only 3% improve to Asia D. Um, if you're uh, Asia B, 54% improvement for the d- lesser degree of weakness. And Asia C or D actually do pretty well. They 86% achieve useful motor function. So the in- primary goal is to s- try to decrease the number of people that are Asia A, because if we can get you to a B or a C, or we can preserve something there, you actually can have some improvement, and that's absolutely vital. The spinal cord is organized, and uh, I, I won't go into too much detail, but basically... Um, you have areas that are both motor tracks and you have sensory tracks. And these are kind of the general areas where you have um, that basically correspond to the area in the spinal cord. Uh, the most important ones for us are kind of voluntary motion, which is basically these white matter axons, the cables that are out here. And then most of your sensory stuff is in this kind of area in here. So um, there's some sensory stuff, which is a little bit different, deep, but deep touch and vibration and proprioception, kind of where your finger is in space um, and so forth, um, is basically in the back of the spinal cord. And, of course, there's all sorts of syndromes that go along with this. You can have all sorts of vascular injuries and contusion injuries um, and partial deficits. Um, but what we're really focusing on is trying to preserve the voluntary motion areas as the most important thing and also the sensory areas. So there have been some guidelines coming out, and it's been one of the best things, I think, in medicine and surgery and medicine is that people have said, let's look at all the papers out there. Let's look at all the evidence and try to figure out what are good papers, what's the good information, you know, what is the standard of care, what should we be doing? So there's all of these people that um, have basically spent all this time at different organizations, and there's literally been, you know, multiple, um, basically multiple published guidelines, including the spinal cord medicine guidelines. These are really comprehensive, and um, if you ever have a friend or a colleague or someone with spinal cord injury, I would advise you to basically um, at least look at some of these guidelines and look at the information that's in there because they're very comprehensive. The unfortunate thing is they tell us that there's not a whole lot out there on some of these topics. And there's like 110 topics, I think, in the spinal cord medicine guidelines. And there's just basically really bad evidence for about 80 of them. But that's where we come in. We're trying to focus on you know, improving the literature. We're trying to come up with basically the studies and do the research and figure this thing out, even though it's a really, really hard disease process to study because it's very infrequent. It happens in the middle of the night, in the middle of the weekend. It's something where you know, it's, there's a lot of other traumatic injuries. It's a very hard thing to study, but that's our goal is to take the patients that we have and pour amazing resources and unbelievable effort into figuring out what is going on with their injuries so we can figure out what at least the best care is, so then we can go on to clinical trials. Anybody know where this is? So that's LCAP. It's actually the nose, and this is basically the great roof, where people go up here, then they go under here, and then you go up basically here. And a buddy of mine who was my climbing partner back when I was in uh, college and med school uh, basically worked in the, in the valley for three years and uh, they had to rescue all these pa- or rescue patients when they had a major injury. This was a horrific accident where basically the, uh, one of the people fell like 150 feet and basically uh, had a head injury and was actually dead. And there was an unfortunate like, 
pictures of like a giant bloody streak down the rock. But the other, basically, the, um, his climbing partner was stranded. So they had to rappel down half the face of El Cap. And then they have a chopper come in with the patient. And then they have to detach from the wall, spin out under the rotor wash with this patient, and take them down to the to valley then to be choppered, basically, into uh, the closest trauma center. And said They call it the king swing as they unclip from the wall and they go underneath the rotor. And they've actually had cases, not, not there, but documented where if you don't strap the patient in well, the rotor wash will spin them so quickly that you can actually lose a patient. So it's just unbelievable the kind of feats that are taking place, usually in bad, in bad weather conditions. Um, this is an unfortunate accident that happened in my neck of the woods just last week. Um, this is an unfortunate accident I think a lot of people read about, about a bus accident just literally like last week. But there's, it's very important for us to know the mechanism of injury. What happened? Was this an airplane crash where they had this sudden um, impact, basically, and you see all of these lumbar fractures? Or was it a head-on crash? Where you're going to see a lot more cervical spine injuries? It's amazing what motor vehicles will you know, basically... Um, allow for as far as um, crunching people in. This person actually was unscathed. Um, believe it or not, um, it's just unbelievable how many advances have taken place um, with motor vehicle crashes and uh, basically the uh, engineering of those vehicles. Um, so what do we know about um, pre-hospital? Well, the, one of the primary things that uh, is most important in the pre-hospital environment is immobilization. But this is, this is embarrassing, there's no standards and no guidelines because now this is a little bit old, but basically the papers were so bad, it never been studied at all, that they couldn't even come up with a standard of guidelines. They gave this option. You can read all of it, but I'm not going to let you read it. It's basically if you suspect a spinal cord injury or suspect an unstable fracture or fracture, put them in a collar, but a collar alone is not enough. Put them on a backboard and... Then you basically get taped down. Has anybody ever been in a, in a car crash where you've had this wonderful experience? Wow, you guys are lucky. Um, so, you know, we've changed over the years, and uh, the, basically, the, and the nurses are great, and they come up and they basically say, we need to get this person off the backboard. Because one thing we did find out is if you leave people in this uh, contraption for four hours of uh, time or so, that they'll actually start to develop uh, ulcers on their back or decubitus pressure sores. It's, and the whole point of it is to immobilize you, but it's really for immobilization and transport. So our goal is to do a rapid evaluation, get all the sticky tape off, basically roll you, get you off this hard backboard, and be able to figure out what your injuries are to kind of go to the next step, but not leave you on that for long periods of time. And we're pretty good about that now, but it's really tough because there's a lot of patients. I mean, this is a typical emergency department outside of an emergency department, backboard after backboard after backboard after backboard. I worked today, and it was just like trauma activation, trauma activation, clear people off the backboard, figuring out if they have spinal cord injuries. But we have high mechanism injuries, and so the bottom line is is you don't want people to have a secondary spinal cord injury. The problem is is you can put the collar on and it does nothing, and especially this happens a lot, where it basically you know, is completely ineffective. It's supposed to be way down here where that part is supposed to be underneath his chin. So you can see that it's not a perfect system, and um, we sometimes, I feel like, put them on to uh, just make ourselves feel good. I will say there's been amazing work done in San Francisco and other places where now we have good protocols in the field where not everybody has to be on a backboard, not everybody has to be in a collar, and it's really helped, and the paramedics have been fantastic about it. I think we have just fantastic paramedics in the EMS system. Um, so do we, is there any information whether EMS has helped at all? Well, it's estimated that 3% to 25% of spinal cord injuries occur after the initial insult. 
Well, that's like an area we can improve on, right? Multiple cases of poor outcome from mishandling, and then the 20% of injuries involve multiple levels. Um, over the last 30 years, we know, there's been a dramatic improvement in the status of spinal cord injury patients arriving in the ED. And no one really knows why. There's a lot of things that happened, like in the 70s. Um, basically, there's regional spinal cord injury centers. There was EMS uh, that brought patients to trauma centers. There were a lot of really good things that happened. And so that we know that basically patients went from 55% of all patients had with complete lesions to 39% in the 80s, and it's slowly and slowly decreasing over time. So we know we're getting really good at taking care of you from the scene of the accident to the emergency department. And we're really careful in the emergency department. People have to be transferred to CTs and MRIs and so forth, and that's done with um, all, all done with spinal precautions. So that's the most important thing we can do. It's very simple. It's uh, low-yielding fruit. And it basically allows us to figure out, um, A, if you likely have a, a break or a spinal cord injury, and then prevent any damage, further damage of that spinal cord injury. So what do we do in the emergency department? Well, the first minute is this rapid-fire survey where we're trying to do the A, B, C, D, and E's. And I'm not sure if they had a talk on the A, B, excellent. So you guys know all about this, so I'll just, like, breeze through this slide. So quickly look into your airway. See if you can talk to us. Listening for equal breath sounds. Circulation, are your pulses intact? Are you in shock? Doing a quick neurologic disability. Can you grab my hands? Can you wiggle your toes? And then uh, figuring out whether you've been submerged underwater for, or you've been out in the rain or if you're hypothermic or... Um, basically completely undressing you, putting you in ground gown to make sure you don't have any other injuries, like a bullet in your back or something, something that sometimes happens. We're surprised. The good news is we have very, very good... Um, we have good monitoring, and so a lot of this I can tell just by you know getting you hooked up to a monitor. So I can see what's your blood pressure, 104 over 60. What's your pulse? That's good. Your respiration rate and your oxygen saturation. So in mere like one minute, I have this tremendous amount of information. But that's important because every second, just like we found out with stroke, your neurons are potentially dying if you have a spinal cord injury, and we need to do this rapidly, and we need to figure out what your injuries are. I've always wanted to try this. I was actually talking to the residents today of whether we could actually put an oxygen saturation on somebody's tongue and get away form. I don't know. I think the vets are amazing, actually. So um, so what are we about airway? Well, the most important thing is hypoventilation. Remember I told you that there's high cervical injuries? Those basically control the diaphragm. So as people won't be breathing and they'll be hypoxic and they may require early intubation. The intubation sometimes can be tough because we can't, we don't want to move your neck at all. So you're basically immobilized while we try to use usually the fiber optic scope to uh, look at your airway to put uh, something in to help you breathe. Um, but that's always an area that's really, really tough because you may have facial fractures, you may have lots of other injuries, and that can be um, um, a very, very important part of not creating secondary injury. I talked about the cardiovascular effects a little bit. You lose a sympathetic tone on these upper part of the injuries all the way down to the thoracic level four, and sometimes you'll have a, a very slow heart rate. The problem is most trauma patients, their, their heart rate would normally be like 80 to 100, maybe 120. So it's usually a relative bradycardia to try to figure out if somebody has neurogenic shock, where they have low blood pressure and bradycardia. But I will tell you, a lot of the patients have a mixed picture. They have some blood loss. They have other injuries. They're you know, in tremendous amounts of pain sometimes. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's very difficult to say you're in neurogenic shock just based on your vital signs. We know that you should be giving fluid probably a little bit, but that can be dangerous in some situations because we can flood your lungs if we give you too much, especially in bad spinal cord injuries. So the question is, can we add these things basically called vasopressors to press you to increase your blood pressure Probably if there's no bleeding. 
So the reason that's important is that if you have bleeding, we can actually make things worse, as I basically mentioned very briefly. So this is another very depressing area that I will tell you this is one of the areas we are looking at very aggressively. There is no standard. There's no guidelines. We think hypotension, a systolic less than 90, that's pretty low. Probably very few people in the room have something less than that. It's usually a traumatic reason. is bad. But we did the opposite, or there's some papers out there that say do the opposite. Put them on something, increase their mean arterial blood pressure, which is basically a combination of your systolic and your diastolic to 85 or 90, which is pretty high. It's not, that's not necessarily something we would normally do. And that's to basically provide some perfu- extra perfusion to the cord. But nobody really knows. Does that help or not? So that's something we're looking at. It was based on initially a traumatic brain injury guideline where they said one single episode of hypotension was associated with a 150% increase in mortality. So we think this is very, very important, but it's like spinal cord injury. You know, these are very infrequent events, but they're devastating when they occur, and they're hard to study. So we're trying to study exactly this. I won't go through these other slides here because they go into a tremendous amount of detail. Um, The reason we're scared is if you use these vasopressors and you're bleeding, then we just increase your mortality by 80%. So it's really important to not use these certain medicines if you're bleeding, and that's the reason you're in shock. Now, if you're bleeding and you have neurogenic shock, then you know, the, the idea is to replace your blood, get that normalized, and then potentially be able to put you on a, a medicine that will increase your blood pressure. Um, so top of the Asia score again, once again, because we are doing this rapidly in the emergency department, it's the D part, A, B, C, D. D stands for disability. We're trying to figure out, do you have motor function? Do you have sensory function? Um, do you have rectal tone? Then we go to rapid imaging. Rapid imaging is something that um, you know, we're, we've really tried to streamline our process. We usually start with a CT scan because we'll not only look for bone, but it'll look for other injuries. We can see if you have a head injury, usually we can see the brain and see if there's any blood in there. And we can also figure out whether or not you have um, you know, blood in your abdomen, blood in your chest, multiple rib fractures. Besides, we can see the bones in your, around your spinal cord. So we try to do that very rapidly. The problem is is that that's a lot of radiation. So we have to figure out when to use CT scan and when to use plain films. Um, What we found over the last five to 10 years is that yes, plain films, which are basically just regular old x-rays, three views, you know, are okay, but they've found that they actually missed a lot of injuries. But this is like all of medicine, and, and this is really important to understand, which is we find a lot of injuries on CT scan, a lot, a lot of injuries that we don't do anything about. And so, yeah, you can all go to your local MRI shop and get your MRIs tomorrow, and we'll find, like, probably 10 or 15 things, and no one will know what to do with them because you wouldn't have gotten that MRI because you were asymptomatic. And even when we find asymptomatic things in other people for a scan that we're doing because you're symptomatic for something else, we don't know what to do with it. And so just because we have the power of imaging doesn't mean we should image everybody with a CT scan every time. Because we find this thing, we don't know what to do with you. Sometimes we cause actually more harm because you try to fix something that never would have been fixed. And it, the f- interesting thing about this, too, is that all these decision rules that we did to not x-ray you at all were based off of plain films. So we don't image a lot of patients that come in. Not the really, really serious trauma patients, but a lot of patients that are really low mechanism. We say, we have these very good clinical decision rules. You don't need any x-rays at all. But you know what? Those are based off of plain films, not CT. So do I need to go back now and take all of our decision rules and do another clinical trial to figure out, did we miss all these things with CT scan? Probably not, because we followed up those patients and found they had no deficits. So just saying it's kind of a philosophy of medicine. Just because we have it, should we be doing it on everybody every time? We could scan everybody that came in the emergency department. 
But what would we end up with? We end up with a lot of radiation, I can tell you that. Um, but we also end up with a lot of things that we would never fix, that we don't need to know about, and that don't cause any harm down the line. Um, the good news is you can see fractures in both cases, but you can see a lot more smaller things and some, some important things, but usually not on the CT scan. The big issue is CT radiation, okay, of the neck. Well, it's not that big of area. It's only 1 35th of abdominal CT. The problem is your thyroid receives all of it. So that's something to keep in mind because you have this organ that actually you know, can turn cancerous pretty easily. And the real problem is if you're a kid and you're under the age of four, we just doubled your risk of thyroid cancer with a single CT scan. So these are big issues, and we always are trying to you know, grapple with when to image and when not to image because the risk of radiation, especially in kids, is great. Um, I will tell you, if you're in a major car wreck, you know, this is not the first thing you should be thinking about. You should be thinking about making sure we, you don't have a life-threatening injury. But you know, we do try to, in these lower mechanism injuries, we try to talk with our patients and talk about it. In kids, we've developed also a clear set of cl- clinical criteria where if you don't have one of these things, we think we don't have to image you. And I won't go into detail to that, but that's been a lot of work, and a lot of kids went into this study. It's been really helpful to not just do CTs on kids. Sometimes the injuries are totally devastating, and there's not anything you can do. That's obviously a complete transection, and it's called, a, it's called a internal decapitation. I don't know if you guys read that. There was an internally decapitated, uh, I think, football player or something that they did a great job of not moving at all, and they were able to fix them. But that's what the, that was the term, which I'd never heard before. It's, the, uh, it's actually basically called atlanto-occipital dislocation. So you can keep the internal uh, decapitation as something. Um, that was uh, recently in the press. Um, so this is an important step. So once we've done the bones, like I said, I don't really care about the bones. I mean, I do because they can, might be shifted and squishing your basically your spinal cord. But we've decided to try to do something which I don't, you know, not a lot of us centers have done, which is get you immediately to MRI. So most of these patients would go to the ICU or they go to the OR. Our goal is to define your injury as fast as possible and do a rapid MRI. Why? Because this is a patient we saw probably two weeks ago or three weeks ago um, and had a lot of blood that we could not see on CT scan that was causing the neurodeficits. And it was, it was very dispersed blood. It was kind of all over the spinal cord. And we could see a little bit of compression in area. We could see something called signal. And we could see the cord was bruised. And the reason that's important is that things don't necessarily stop bleeding on their own. So that patient may be totally fine, and they may go to surgery for something else. And then they wake up from the OR for, like, you know, something in their abdomen, and they can't move their legs. And the reason is that blood continued to bleed into the area around their spinal cord. And if it's not diagnosed, then it's a possibility that um, you have this continuing injury. So our goal is to get you rapidly from CT to MRI, and then final step. I'm sorry, these are just horrible spinal cord injuries that are actually unfortunate but real cases. Um, get you rapidly to the OR. So we're trying to do something which has really met a lot of resistance in a lot of centers throughout the United States, and it hasn't been studied in great detail, but can we get you to the OR and we can get that compression off of the spinal cord? And there's been one study. The problem is is they put a lot of money into this, and they couldn't randomize it, and this drives us crazy. Um, Secondary to ethics of decompression in a deteriorating patient. It was done through Canada, um, and it was 313 patients. There were some U.S. centers. Um, But basically, they did find that early surgery of 14.2 hours did um, cause about a 20% improvement. Um, So, I'm sorry, 20% of patients had an improvement of two or greater Asia, basically Asia score levels. So there's something there. 
we're trying to actually take it the next step. We're trying to go four hours or somewhere between four and eight hours, depending on your other injuries, because we believe in it, because we're seeing good results, and we're trying to study it at the same time. Yeah, sorry. So the final thing here um, it, uh, with patients is something called evoked potential, something I'm interested in, is in the, uh, in the OR, we basically do electrical stimulation, and we try to figure out if you have intact signals through your spinal cord. So we stimulate over your motor cortex, which goes down and moves your limbs, and we try to figure out through signals if you have a normal functioning spinal cord that we somehow can't figure out otherwise. Um, and we try to put it, we have to put in a fair amount of volts uh, as much as 700 to 800 volts to figure that out. Um, these are the signals. This is what happens when we lose signal in a case, in a normal case, and our goal is to see if you have any signal at all after we uh, do spinal cord stimulation. So just a few brief words about San Francisco General. We have a unique population. Look at this. Falls. I tell you, that's higher than any other trauma center probably in the United States. We have an amazing amount of falls. We also have a fair amount of spinal cord injuries as a result. We do have some gunshot wounds. We have a fair amount of gunshot wounds. That's a whole different ballgame. There's a lot of different hemorrhage and other sort of effects. And then we have motor vehicle collisions. It's not one of our major, major things, but we do have them. I think it's just because nobody can drive more than 15 miles per hour in San Francisco at any point. So we never see the high mechanism there. The MS data, and this is what has been really interesting, is that we have patients... Our last study looked at, we get our patients sometimes somewhere around 17 minutes after EMS arrives. And so that's like usually 10 minutes after injury. That's unbelievable. As far as we can tell, it's one of the fastest in the world. It's because we're such a dense city and the trauma center is like located so centrally. So we have this opportunity to study these patients at the very, very earliest moments of injuries. We can document findings. I talked to the paramedics today. They're like, yeah, that guy's exam was changing in front of me. He was losing, basically, the ability to move his toes. And they show signs of spinal and neurogenic shock and all these things that nobody else has really had a chance to look at. So we're really focused on, on that. We've also found out that our patients were seeing two spikes, uh, one in our mid-20s and one in our mid-70s, a spinal cord injury. We're seeing a lot of, unfortunately, people in their 70s falling and having spinal cord injuries, sometimes that involve the center of their cord. Um, this is an important thing for me. Our patients still are in the ED for 209 minutes on average. And this is important because a lot of these patients are in neurogenic shock and sitting in the ED getting these tests done, but they're in neurogenic shock. So our goal is to basically change this and avoid the hypotension and focus on all the things we can do while we're doing this workup. I'm going to just change that because it's a little more detail. So I just want to plug for a group. This is a panoramic, so you can't really see it, but we have... Um, a very interesting group of researchers. Um, we have two basic scientists right here and right there, and that's Mike and Jackie, who've been doing this and probably the preeminent basic science researchers in spinal cord injury, along with my mentor, Linda Noble, who I don't think is here, but um, is at UCSF, um, who basically have been studying this um, and studying the basic science behind it. And then we have myself in the emergency department. We have Dr. Pasquale from rehab. We have... Sanjay Dahl, right there, who's our neurosurgeon, who was basically recruited here just for spinal cord injury. Um, he was the um, head of spinal surgery at Grady. We have an amazing statistician who's actually a PhD, does great stuff with big data, looking at all of our data points. We have an anesthesiologist. We have a neuroradiologist. All of them have done PhDs in spinal cord injury. I've never been around a group of this in my life, and this is, to me, the key of research. We have all these people from all the different parts of the injury that are focused on 
how to solve this problem. And we all have very different viewpoints. And that's why I put this there. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're a little bit at odds. Sometimes we don't understand the other person's world. But it's really amazing as we get together and we discuss what we're doing and the research that's basically happening figuring out, oh, yeah, I know the answer to that, or, yeah, we see that, or you want me to do that in the first 10 minutes of injury? Sure, I can do that. I can talk to so-and-so. And then you combine that with a basic scientist to say, well, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not what we see in this model or that model, and then we go back. So our goal is to keep taking these ideas from the bench to the bedside and back to the bench, and then just keep going back and forth to figure out what the changes are, what we're seeing, and how we can change this injury. So with that, I'm going to pass the uh, baton or the uh, lightsaber here. And thank you very much. And I'm happy to answer any questions, but it's probably better to do at the end. And we'll hear Dr. Pasquale first, if that's okay. Um, thank you for having us here today to talk to you about spinal cord injury. Um, Dr. Weststone and I both work to get, uh, together with that group, uh, that group you just saw a, a, a few minutes ago. And it's great because He's at the way front of the spinal cord spectrum when he sees the first the patient early on. Then I see the patient way, way, way towards the. Actually, I see them in the ICU as well. But then I follow them all the way out into the rehab to the rehab center and his outpatients into the community. So, so that's all uh, all good. I'm a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor. I usually say that if you see me, you wake up in a hospital and you see me. There's good news and bad news. The bad news is something's happened to you that's not great. The good news is that they've called me because they think there's hope for your recovery. So, so that's all good. So we're going to go over some things. We're going to go over background to spinal cord injury. Thank goodness Dr. Whetstone's gone over some of this for me so we can spend time on other things. Classification, you heard about the Asia classification. We're going to go into a little bit more detail about that because that's something that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, predictors, the functional implication of spinal cord injury, and then we're just going to summarize. So we're going to take a case. It's very typical. It's in the medical jargon that we use when we present a case. So we have a 25-year-old male who is what we call status post a motor vehicle crash who sustained a C5 fracture dislocation with resultant C6 quadriplegia, Asia A or AISA. He's admitted to rehabilitation with a Foley catheter and he's incontinent of bowel and he wants to know his prognosis. So let's take this apart a little bit. You heard about this a little bit. For the, He's a male. Obviously, he's a male. So the question is, um, true or false? Are more males than females sustain spinal cord injury? Um, just show of hands, more males? Yeah. So it's like head injury. It usually is more males than females. In fact, it's 80% male. So go, I want to go down to where it says mean age of injury, and Dr. Whetstone touched on this. It's actually young males. It's sort of a bimodal distribution where you have a lot of young males, and then now we're creeping up and seeing a lot of the elderly. And that's what he was alluding to with a lot of the falls, particularly in San Francisco. When I round with the neurotrauma team, team every week, there's uniformly at least one or a handful of individuals who have sustained either traumatic brain injuries or, or, or spinal cord injuries from a fall, either from just standing, they tripped, or they fell down the stairs. And usually it's the stair fall where we get the, um, we get the spinal cord injury. Now, um, uh, this particular person was in a motor vehicle crash. And uh, the question then is, what is the most common cause of spinal cord injury? Tumors? Not so much. Motor vehicle crash? So in general, yes, motor vehicle crash is um, the most common cause of spinal injury in general. 
here in San Francisco, not so much. We have a lot of the falls, uh, as we were mentioning before. And that's what skews our age. It's starting to skew the age from being young spinal cord injured patients more towards the year uh, 40 years old because now you have a lot of the um, elderly who are falling and, and moving that mean age or average age of spinal cord injury up a little bit more. So now this particular patient has a C5 fracture and C6 tetraplegia or quadriplegia. So what does that all mean? So as, as we saw earlier, your spine is divided up into three um, major parts, your, your cervical spine, your thoracic spine, and your lumbar spine. And so you have vertebra. There's about seven here, 12 here, and five here. And then down here is your sacral uh, region. And from your brain, as you know, it goes down into your spinal cord like this, and then it stops around here. Then you have like little uh, sacral nerves coming out, like we call it the cauda equina. It's, it's like the tail of a horse um, having nerves coming out through these little holes in your sacrum. And basically, um, your spinal cord sits in kind of a nice cozy area here, protected by bone around it. And it shoots off nerves that come out in between each of these vertebra. These nerve roots have um, information coming from the brain coming down and telling your, for example, arms or legs what to do. And then likewise, you have information from the periphery or your arms and legs coming up your spinal cord and giving the, your, spinal, your, your brain an idea of what you're feeling, so sensation. So the two basic things we often look at is motor function or movement and then sensation. So here's sort of like all, all the network pathways of movement and sense motor, motor nerves and sensory nerves going up and down, culminating in your spinal cord and back up to your brain. But there are far more structures that, are in, that, are, that have a relationship with your spinal cord, and we're going to touch on uh, a little bit, which is your, ba- your bladder and your bowel, which uniformly, after a significant spinal, uh, spinal cord injury, you have um, a dysfunction related to urination and also to defecating, uh, which can be significant, especially for quality of life of an individual. So as, as we were alluding to, there are so many things that can happen as a result of a spinal cord injury. It not just affects your ability to feel or to move, it affects your bowel and bladder. We have funny things called spasticity where your reflexes have kind of all run amok and you're, you're starting to, you can get involuntary flexion or extension of your muscles, not something you're doing on purpose, but something your body is doing on your own. You can also have um, problems with bowel or, or with uh, blood pressure functioning, either too high or too low. Um, you can also become what we call poikilothermic, which means that your temperature regulation is off. So on really, really, really cold days, your temperature can go really, really low easily. Or on really hot days, you have a, a propensity or a tendency to have your, your temperature equate that of your surroundings. So you have to be really careful in extremes of weather. If you're injured, particularly in the cervical spine area and the upper thoracic spine area, um, you can also, just like any other trauma patient, 
be at risk for these happening during your acute hospital stay and during rehabilitation when you're not moving around much. You can develop blood clots in your legs, you can you develop pressure ulcers from not moving around, or you can develop contractures at your joints from being not being able to move your joints around. So it's important to know that there are many things that can be involved after a spinal cord injury, injury and this is just a short list of the potential um, effects that a spinal uh, cord injury can do. So we're going to just talk briefly about the first two because it's, it's something we wrestle with in a lot of our spinal cord injured patients, which is very important for their quality of life. So this person in our case had a Foley catheter. And a Foley catheter is something that helps to drain somebody's bladder of its urine. Um, in the olden days, like at the turn of the century, the first half of the century, people used to, ha used to die because uh, they didn't know how to manage somebody's bladder function um, correctly. They weren't able to realize that they, the bladder needed to be drained and we couldn't just have urine accumulating in the bladder, so much so that the, the kidney or the renal mortality was up as high as 95%. This was likely due to the, the bladder's inability to void as we know it, um, and the, the bladder would get bigger, bigger, and bigger, um, and that would put them at risk for infections. And sometimes it even would occur where the urine in the bladder would go the wrong way and shoot up into the kidneys, which, of course, would do damage to the kidney, not only uh, putting them at risk for infection. So historically, a catheter is Greek for something to lower into. And interestingly, this here is supposed to be an ancient Greek catheter. Now, I don't know what archaeologists went around and saw this tube and thought, oh, well, this looks like a catheter to me. But I don't know, it could be like a tool or something in the kitchen, but clearly they thought this was a catheter. And they used to use this not because of spinal, to drain a bladder from a spinal cord injury, because in those days, likely somebody who had a spinal cord injury would succumb from their spinal cord injuries fairly quickly. But this was actually used for an age-old problem that still exists, and that's prostatism, so an enlarged prostate. So this is how they would empty urine from the, uh, from the bladder using one of these, which was made of something like bronze or even gold. So it makes you cringe. <laughs> Uh, right away. So anyway, so now we're a little bit more gentler. This is a Foley catheter, a nice, soft, flexible material. In the emergency department, we put these in. They put these in right away um, so that the bladder can be drained. It also allows us to, uh, to monitor the amount of fluid that's coming out um, of, of the patient because we want to know what, how much fluid is coming in. We want to know how much fluid is coming out because that gives us an indication of their, of their uh, functioning kidneys, for example. So uh, for spinal cord injured patients who either who have difficulty voiding, like basically peeing, or have incontinence where they have no control of their ability to pee, um, we, the catheter sounds like a pretty good uh, way for them to continually drain urine out of the bladder. So the thought is, well, why can't we just, okay, good, we have an answer. We'll use Foley catheters. Well, the problem with using Foley catheters over a long period of time is that it puts somebody at risk for infections. You have an increased incidence of kidney stones and a small but present um, incidence of bladder cancer. And really, there's also this whole quality of life concern. Would you particularly want to have a tube in your bladder, um, with a tube going to a bag that's collecting your urine that's connected to your leg. 
Probably not. There's got to be a better way to do something um, for emptying our bladder without having a tube connected to us constantly. So what are our options? Well, we don't want to do this because that's crazy. We, don't, we said we don't want to do the Foley catheter. So we have something like this. This is, this is a red robin. And there's a method called clean intermittent catheterization that's pretty much standard of care in the care of spinal cord injured patients where basically what you do is you become continent using this, this tube. So you wake up in the morning, most of us go to the bathroom. So what a spinal cord injured patient might do is they would clean around their urethral area, insert the catheter in, drain the, the, the urine out of the bladder, either into, directly into the toilet or into a urinal, and then um, take, the, take the tube out, wash it with soap and water, let it dry, and hopefully the, uh, the next time you'll do that is maybe around lunchtime, like when you or I would pee the next time. And the goal there is to be dry in between each catheterization and not have an appliance like a leg bag with urine around you so that, that way you don't have to wear incontinence pads and you don't have to um, worry about being incontinent in between. You can wear regular underwear. So that's the goal of bladder training. And it's hard to wrap your head around it when we're trying to do it in... Uh, the acute hospital setting like at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General, or at Laguna Honda or rehab setting, we have to continually educate, why are we doing this, why are we doing this, why are we doing this, so that people will hopefully become compliant with this. So when we, did, we figured out how to manage a bladder, the, the um, renal-related mortality went down from 95% to 3%. So it's definitely worth doing. Okay. And likewise, just like a bladder... There's problems, uh, similar problems with the bowel. You either are incontinent of bowel, or you just have bowel movements kind of whenever. Um, the patient is unable to feel when they're full, and even if they could feel when they're full, they may not be able to, you know, contract their sphincters to not let a bowel movement happen when it's not supposed to. You know how sometimes we're like, Ugh, and then you, then you have to rush to the bathroom. You make it to the bathroom, you relax, and then you have a bowel movement. Um, this is a problem with people who have spinal cord injury, injuries. So in the ICU or in the hospital, when you're all hooked up to monitors and you can't really move, they're trying to save your life, most of the bowel movement that you have is in the bed. And, and, that, and then that went the, with those bowel movements, there's a lot of cleanup involved. But down the line, we don't want that to happen when you're at home because we don't want to have to do all this cleanup. We would rather that you have a bowel movement into a toilet. So how does that work with somebody who may not be able to feel that they need to go to the bathroom? And even if they could feel it, they may not have any control over actually preventing it from occurring just at random times during the day. And how can we get them to be able to use regular underwear versus a diaper or an incontinence pad? So what we do is we try to... Use, uh, we try to work with something called the gastrocolic reflex, which we all have. So I don't know if you've noticed, if you have a big meal and um, down the line you start to feel full and then maybe a little bit later you start to feel like you have to have a bowel movement because you just ate so much. So that's pretty normal because this, when your stomach is stretched full of food, it starts some uh, movement of the, uh, the colon to start moving stool along. And when there's enough stool that gets down to the rectal area, it stretches that rectal area. And you have a reflex, so not a voluntary thing you're necessarily thinking of, but a reflex relaxation of one of the internal, your internal sphincter muscles down in your rectal and pelvic area. And then you have voluntary control of the 
external sphincter to say whether or not you want to let that bowel movement pass through. So in a spinal cord injured patient, they have that reflex, some, the most, if you have a certain kind of um, uh, spinal cord injury, so that so that they, their, their motility in their colon increases, and we really try to exploit that gastrocolic reflex. We really want that reflex to happen. So what we do is we pick, a day, we pick a meal during the day, let's say breakfast, so they eat breakfast. Around the time of breakfast, we want to stimulate that rectal area like crazy to basically tell our body, we want to reflexively void. We want to void now. We want to void now. And the way we do that is to take a lubricated, gloved finger, stick it into the rectum, stimulate the rectal area a little bit, insert a suppository, which also stimulates that area, and then hopefully we will have a big reflex evacuation of the bowel all at once. So we're not having to deal with incontinence that happens throughout the day. So when you get your bowel trained in this manner, you can wear regular underwear. Hopefully you won't have any incontinence when you're in a restaurant or shopping or in a movie. And that's kind of like the whole goal of having uh, bowel training. Again, this is really hard to wrap your head around when you're going through the rehab process. We do a lot of repetition on why we're doing this because a lot of people say, I'm having a bowel movement. And we tell them, but you're not having a bowel movement when you're ready for it. And that's the key here. We want to be able to have a bowel movement when you're not in bed. And if you're somebody who can sit on a toilet, we want you to have it in a toilet just using the minimal, minimal amount of tools like a gloves, a suppository, and maybe and gel, hopefully to train your, um, your bowel. So the other part of his history is this Asia-A or AISA classification, which was mentioned earlier. I'm going to go just qu- quickly but a little bit more into that. The Asia classification was developed by the American Spinal Injury Association, and it allows us to classify a spinal cord injury so that we can all speak the same language with each other and paint a picture of how severe or not severe a patient's spinal cord injury is. And once we know what their Asia classification level is, we can kind of think, okay, the patient's going to look like this, and I guess they're, they're, um, this is what we're going to be working on rehab with them. And we also use that Asia classification to help us look at any outcomes that might happen. If we've tried a new treatment, did their Asia score change any different? It's also used in research. So we're going to go over it super quickly with this busy slide right here, which we're going to cut through a lot of this chase, but this is what the form looks like. The first thing we do, and we really look at basically motor function, movement, and sensory function, their ability to feel. So see all these stripes here are called dermatomes. And these basically correspond to the nerves that are coming out of your cervical area, your thoracic area, your lumbar area, and also your sacral area. So for example, here, this is covered by your your cervical region, um, and they have little numbers on it. And when we do an exam, we see how far can we go from about here as far down as we can go, where sensation is normal on both sides, right and left. So for this particular person, two is normal. Two means normal, zero means they didn't have any sensation. So for this particular person in the case, they were normal to C6. C6 is they have sensation here normal, and they have sensation kind of here normal. Okay. Then we do the same thing for motor. It's a little different. We look at 10 different uh, uh, motor movements, five in the arm and five in the leg. And they, they correspond to different spinal nerves 
in, 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 the, in the body. So C5, what's coming out of your C5 spinal nerve is your elbow flexors, like your biceps. So we look at these major muscle groups, like a little dance we do. It's elbow flexion, wrist extension, this movement, um, this movement with your finger, and this movement with your finger. And then same thing down in the leg. And we give it grades. The grading is zero, 0 to 5, 5 being normal, 0 being nothing. And in this particular patient, we see at C5, the, the top of the motor function, it's a 5, which is normal. The next is, is C4, uh, C6, and you can see that it's a 4. Technically, it's not normal, but this is a weird scale. So basically, how this works is you go to where it's normal on both sides, so that right and left were both normal. You drop down one level, and if it's a number 3 or better, you get that level. You get that level. They give you that level. So essentially, for this particular person, their motor level is C6. So, so far, we've got sensation to C6, and motor function to C6. Now we get something called a neurological level of injury. And so basically we say, how far can we go down where both sensation and movement or motor function on the left and the right side are normal? And in this case, the answer here is C6. Okay. So you're like, okay, what does that mean? Okay. So far we know everything C6 and above seems to be normal. Now, here's the part that's, that was alluded to earlier in terms of complete and incomplete, super important. When you look at the spinal cord, spinal cord innervates stuff all the way down through the arms, all the way to the lumbar region, the, the, which goes to the front of the leg, and up the back of the leg, the sacral region, all the way to the rectum. So we, we look at two different things to determine if somebody has a complete injury or an incomplete injury. By complete, it means that there doesn't seem to be indication of transmission going all the way along the cord from the tippy top all the way down to your rectal area, which is kind of the bottom. Okay. And likewise, is there any, there's no uh, seeming transmission of impulses from the rectal area, from the, from, the, from the sacral area, all the way up into the brain. Incomplete means there looks like there's something going on there in the spinal cord that is sending messages from the top all the way to the bottom. And the way we, we've tried to figure that out is, number one, do they have deep anal pressure? So you stick your finger in their rectum, and if they feel that, that's good. That means you're incomplete. Or if you stick your finger in your rectum and you say, okay, squeeze my finger with your, with your anus, can you do that? And they can do that. That, again, means they're incomplete, which is a good sign. Okay, so unfortunately, this in this particular case, this person was complete. He didn't have either the, that sensation in the rectal area, nor did he have contraction in that area. So busy, busy, busy. So here's, here's the thing about this, is now we have to give him the actual Asia impairment scale, A, B, C, D, or E. We'll ignore E because E is normal. A means complete. It means that there didn't seem to be any transmission of signals up and down the spinal cord. They didn't have that sensation in the rectal area. Um, they didn't have the ability to, to squeeze your finger when your finger was in their rectum. Okay. B, C, and D are all incomplete spinal cord lesions. B meaning that they have sensation but really no movement below the neurological level. But C and D are good because it means that they do have some movement going on. More in D than in C. So if B 
is okay, good, you're incomplete. C is you've got some movement. D means you've got some really good strength. We won't go into how they, how they score that. But to suffice it to say that if you're incomplete and you move from B to D, that's all good. That's better from a prognostic standpoint. In this case, this patient was an A. He was complete. Okay, so here's something that is important, especially when we're thinking about prognosis. It's moving from a B to a C. So we talked about A is complete. B means you have sensation, but you don't really have any motor. And we base motor on those big muscle groups that I was talking about, elbow flexion, wrist extension, that kind of thing. Well, what if you just can do this? Does that, does that count as anything? Or if you can move your toe a little bit, does that count as anything? And in fact, it does. If you move anything, if you're a B, in other words, you have sensation or you can do an anal wink, and you can move something, it doesn't have to be one of these big muscle groups, then you can qualify to be a C, which is a big deal, which we'll talk about why. Okay, so just so that we can kind of clear up which might be better to have if you had to have one. Fortunately, you don't want to have either, but would you rather be a C6 Asia A or a C3 Asia D? Now, at first glance, if you don't know the Asia classification, go, God, C3, that's like way up here. But Asia D means they are so incomplete. They've got a lot of motor strength that's going on that this person who's Asia A does not have. So from a functional standpoint, this is possibly where you would want to be. Okay. Okay, so completeness. About 40% of people who uh, have spinal cord injury are complete. About 60% are incomplete. So now our patient wants to know what his prognosis is like. Well, there are a ton of studies and articles that try to figure out, okay, if you present this way in the emergency department or if you present this way in the first few days, what's it going to look like? Are you going to get better? Because that's what the family member and the patients are asking. You know, is my loved one going to move? Are they going to walk? Are they going to be able to do this, that, and the other thing? We like to say something better than, you know, I really don't know. So, so we've looked at a lot of different, they've looked at a lot of different studies to try to answer that. So when we're talking about function, so we, it mostly revolves around function. Will my loved one be able to feed themselves, groom, perform hygiene, hygiene a task, dress, bathe, toilet, walk? Okay, so a lot of these studies use this as an outcome as to whether or not somebody's getting better or recovering. Okay, so these, some of these studies have shown that this is fairly intuitive. You have a higher mortality if you're a complete spinal cord injured patient than an incomplete one. And that kind of makes intuitive sense. So it seems to be a less severe injury. Incomplete means you're, you're moving or you have some sensation below your neurological level. But this is an interesting study that was done where this was done for medical legal reasons. They wanted to know how soon can you kind of get the medical legal thing going after a spinal cord injury. Do you have to wait like a year or do you have to wait two years before you have something that you're going to move on legally? It's an interesting concept. But um, for this, they found that recovery after a spinal cord injury is probably stable around a year. What you have around a year is roundabouts where you're going to be. So they recommend that wait a year before you do something, if you're going to, I, I assume they mean litigate, I didn't really go into that, but medical legally, if you're going to have an evaluation, best to do it at about a year's time, with the exception of Asia A's, because Asia A's are complete, and they found that in their study, 94% of the people who 
presented as, as Asia A, remained Asia A, and, and, and they didn't change. So, no, so instead of waiting the, the year to see if, how much you recover after your spinal cord injury, they say you can go ahead and start medical legal evaluation as soon as when they get out of the rehabilitation hospital. So that would mean like you're at, for example, Zuckerberg San Francisco General, and you move on to a rehab hospital and you get discharged, probably a good time to go ahead and move on whatever medical legal thing you have, might have in mind um, because their prognosis for improvement beyond that time, even early on, shows that there's not going to get a lot of improvement happening. They also noted that one-third of Asia Bs um, uh, demonstrated evidence of rec some recovery, and a third of that population had recovery that could be actually translated into something functional, like walking or eating or dressing or something like that. But here's what I mean about what's the big deal about moving from a B to a C. Look at the recovery for somebody who is a C. 76% of people who are Cs improve neurologically, and they're all neurologically improved from a, functional from a functional standpoint. So really important to kind of pop into from being a B to a C. So here's somebody who was injured in, in let's see, as a B, as a C4B. So this arm is pretty plegic. This arm, he has a little bit of biceps, and he's power wheelchair dependent. So here is where he is in November. So he was one of those third of a third. A third get better, and of those third, a third neurologically improved. So this is not the typical typical, but great for him. He started out as an Asia B. Asia B meaning sensation below the lesion, but really no motor. He started out as a, as a C, okay? We were worried about him because he was a, he was a vet who had lost a lot of his fingers, and he only had a little bit of movement in his leg. We're thinking, how is he going to manage? But as you can see, he was able to do some ambulation. And in fact, you can see that nearly all the patients who are Cs under the age of 50 walk after rehab. Okay, So big deal if you get to the C. I mean, it's good that you get to a B, but really big deal when you get to a, a class C. Okay, now I'm just going to switch gears, and you're wondering, okay, what kind of functional outcomes are we looking at for a different spinal cord level? So we're just going to um, kind of uh, talk about the long-term outcomes. Now, we're going to presume that these patients that we're going to be talking about are A's or B's, which mean they don't, they're not able to move their, their limbs below that level. So C1 to C4 is kind of up in this region. As was mentioned earlier by Dr. Whetstone, if you are C1 or C2, you are probably ventilator, you are not probably, you are ventilator dependent because your diaphragm receives its innervation from C2 to C4. So here's one, C1 to C2. It's not getting that full innervation of your diaphragm. You're going to be what we call dependent for your activities of daily living. Somebody has to do all of your stuff for you. But you can mobilize a wheelchair. So how would that be? Well, there are several ways to do it. One is to actually have a head array. It's kind of like this thing around your face, and you move your head like this, and it helps to propel your power wheelchair forward, backward, sideways. They can drive independently. Or they have a sip and puff device. It's like a thick straw where you on, on the, uh, in the straw, and that actually controls your wheelchair. Or you use your chin on a joystick. 
Okay, so there are ways to be independent with mobility, even if you are a very high quadriplegic. This is a standing frame where you can put, uh, drive a wheelchair up to this. You have a harness under the patient. You hook the harness up to the machine. You crank it up. It's a hydraulic device, and then it can move them up into a standing position. They're not actively standing. They're passively standing. But for a lot of people who can't stand, it's nice to get up at your full height. You're stretching your, your muscles, your, your heel cords your hamstrings. It's good for your bowels in theory. You're standing up. So so advantages of a standing frame for somebody who is not able to stand on their own. Um, uh, When you go down to C5 or C6, that gives you biceps and wrist extension. You still need help with your your activities of daily living. You still need some help with transferring from point A to point B. But you're driving your wheelchair in a little bit different way. This is a power wheelchair, and they have a joystick onto which they kind of set their hand, and this is how they drive their wheelchair. So not driving with their head, but driving now with their hand, and they're able to help a little bit with their um, activities of daily living. They are able to brush their teeth and to um, comb their hair. There are little devices that we can hook on so they can brush their teeth, comb their hair using their biceps this way. Um, so they are able to participate in some light hygiene activities. Okay, and this is a lightweight wheelchair. It's for um, patients who don't who have have more strength in their arm. When you get to a C7 level, it's a big level for independence because C7 gives you triceps. So now you can push up, you can transfer yourself from one point to another. You could reach down towards your legs, and a very agile physically fit person could probably be fully independent at a C7 level. So um, that's a huge level, and you no longer need a power wheelchair. You can use these light wheel, lightweight wheelchairs to get around. Just as an example of how much work it takes to um, do a transfer, you can see why his triceps, or your elbow extension, is really important to do the transfer. And he's on a sliding board to kind of bridge that gap between the wheelchair and the bed. But he needs a lot of um, strength in his arms and balance to do what we call lower extremity management. That's managing his, to get his legs onto the, uh, onto the bed. It's a lot of work. Now, you can also think at the level T10 to T12, that's way down here towards your pelvis, about bracing. A comment about bracing to stand. Now, this is a, what we call an HKAFO, a hip, knee, ankle, foot orthoses. And this is where the knee is locked in extension, so it's locked. The person really is holding themselves up and balancing by his, their, their two crutches. Okay, It's not really functional in a sense. A functional would be, I'm going to take a glass of water and I'm going to bring it from the sink, I'm going to bring it here and I'm going to put it on a table. Can't do that with this because your hands are holding onto the crutches and you can't really let go. It's, 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 it's hard also to go from a sitting to a standing position without any help. So for those of you who want to know what I mean, if you extend your legs in your seat right now and you try to push yourself up into a standing position, it's super hard to do. But you, what you have to do is kind of flip over onto your belly, which is kind of scary. So you really need somebody to be with you to get into the standing position. It takes a whole lot of energy to walk with it, walk in this way. And the walking tends to be advance, advance um, the crutches and kind of swing the legs forward. So it takes a lot of balance and a lot of strength. Just a little bit about returning to home. 
almost 90% of the patients who leave rehabilitation go to home. And the things that negatively impact, negatively impact discharge to home or barriers to uh, returning home tend to be ventilator dependence or high quadriplegics or if they don't have a support system, they're unmarried or unemployed, or if they are the elderly. Return to work, not a lot of information about that, unfortunately. Whether they return to work to their old job or whether they return to a, and get vocational rehabilitation and go to another job, we're really not sure. But the barriers to employment include financial disincentives. So if you are disabled, you may be able to get a, dis, a, a disability income. The problem is if you start working, in some, in some cases, you don't get that income anymore, so now you have to make up that income with working, and a lot of spinal cord patients can't work full time, so when you do the math, sometimes it's better not to work uh, and, lose, and lose all the, ben- the benefits that you have, depending on what kind of work you do. So there's also difficulty with access to many jobs, uh, access in terms of transportation and physical access into buildings. But positive um, uh, uh, characteristics of individuals who can return to work, uh, often return to work, are those who have a higher level of formal education prior to their injury, if there was a nonviolent etiology for their injury, and if they were employed at the time of their injury, and of course if their injury was less severe. Things that you can do to increase your probability of being employed after your injury includes getting married, then you have a support system, Pursue, you can do that. Pursuing an additional education, limiting the occurrence of health complications, basically taking care of yourself, and really valuing hard work and, and, and being willing to do that. Okay, lastly, I just wanted to bring this up. There are innovations that are coming up now, now about bionic type of devices that you wear externally to, um, to ambulate. Now, some of these devices are only for use in the rehabilitation center. They're not to take home. Some of these devices are to take home, but there are certain strict criteria for those who are uh, appropriate for its use. Um, They're prohibitively expensive. Therefore, they are not widely available. Uh, Most insurances do not cover this at this time because they are so expensive. But I think we're going to see more and more of these, um, and hopefully at lower price points, so some of our other patients can uh, benefit from these devices. So just in summary, just want to say that each spinal cord injury is very individual, and you can see how that is from all the different things we do to characterize them on the Asia classification scale. But that classification scale helps us to communicate with each other as to how severe somebody might be. Um, it can, can help us to prognosticate of, uh, where we think a person is going to be in the next few weeks and the next year. It helps us plan our rehabilitation. Should we shoot for a power wheelchair? Should we shoot for a manual wheelchair? And it helps, so it helps us to set functional goals, and it helps to frame expectations of the patient so they're not always thinking, what if, what, what's it going to be like? So we can give them a little bit more concrete evidence as what to expect. There's a lot of research that needs to be done, as you know, from the get-go from the pre-hospital setting through the ED, through the acute hospital stay, and then even as outpatients in terms of what happens to spinal cord injured patients after their injury. Where do they go and how do they fare in the community? But fortunately, there's a lot of innovation going on on both ends of that spectrum, both in the acute hospital course and also for devices for people who have chronic spinal cord injuries that will hopefully help them from a functional standpoint along the way. Thanks for your attention. Yes. 
Go ahead. This is fascinating. Uh, are, are there uh, developments and or research uh, now uh, regarding artificial mechanisms for uh, igniting Nerves that that have that are at the other end of the injury uh, by bypassing the injury area and and sparking a, uh, a neurological response in an extremity or something like this. Um, is that is that happening? Or is yeah, so just um, I asked to repeat the question. I always forget, so I'll just repeat the question. Basically, are there basically advances or research going into um, sparking the nerves distal to the injury, either you know not going through the injury area, I assume is what you're talking about. I can just speak to kind of my own interest just from an engineering perspective that there I mean, there are a lot of a lot of research centers that have focused on that primarily. There was something called functional electrical stimulation, FES, which basically went in and they even would put in electrodes into the area of the spinal cord, to the distal nerve root. And I'm sorry, I'm getting very detailed here, so please ask uh, if I'm if I'm going, getting too technical. But um, the the it hasn't panned out, I think, quite the way they want it to so far. It's very complex. The the spinal cord has inherent even walking programs in it so that's been the most encouraging thing that you can you can take um, at least they know some species and they can actually be spinalized and yet they can still walk on a treadmill because basically the it's all reflex oriented for the most part it's like the the body senses and it's all within the spinal cord it doesn't need any sort of uh, information from the brain um, it's been a little bit uh, I guess just uh, uh, Unencouraging, I would say that this research hasn't gone the way we thought maybe it would. So people are doing it. Um, they're, they're basically just find these electrodes and stimulating, try to do muscle groups and so forth. Um, there are some things also for bowel and bladder that have taken place. Um, they've had a lot of trouble with the stability of the electrodes, and um, and it, for some reason it just hasn't really gained the popularity that I thought it would initially. Uh, we're we're at San Francisco General, um, and me in, t- in particular, are more interested in in looking. At at seeing if we can, can find any of those fibers that are still alive and actually go through the injury, because my thought process has always been that you know there is uh, there are cables, there are axons that actually will work, and then use the the natural machinery that's already there, the natural cables that are there. But people have looked at that stimulation, both of the muscles and of the spinal cord. No, that's good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll yeah. go with that answer. Any other questions? Yes. This is, um I remember that there was talk about stem cell research and all this whole, um, is there any uh, progress in that area? Do you want to take that? Um, the question was regarding stem cell research, research and whether or not there was any progress in that area. There is research going on. There's nothing that is translating at this point yet to humans and, um, and clinical kind of trials. I think there's a lot of models um, that, are, that are more in the animal trial stage. Um, and then there are not only stem cells, there's other chemicals that are, people are, are looking at to see if they can... Um, uh, uh, Save or to minimize damage to the cord in those different areas. So that's still go- that's going on as well. But nothing that from from the bedside, as we're talking about bench, like scientific bench, to the bedside that we're u- utilizing at this time. Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask. I, I'm sorry. I have to ask. Is it possible to survive an internal decapitation? 
So I'll answer yes, just because I love the some of the. Uh, I'm sorry, I apologize. Is it possible to survive the internal decapitation? Um, and I guess my answer would be yes, only because I'm sorry, I'm not even supposed to be that close to the mic. Um, is that it? That was the documented evidence that made I think the New York Times or several different articles. Um, but it was one of those things that they knew that there was something very wrong. Obviously, the head was very floppy. They immediately stabilized the head and made sure that basically there was absolutely no movement um, in transport to the hospital, and then they were able to get that patient all the way to surgery and fix it without there being any movement that would sever the spinal cord. I would say that that's probably the only documented case ever to have happened. This this accident, this this particular injury, the uh, occipital atlanto dislocation, the internal decapitation, um, is usually happens you know at at the time of injury, and it's usually basically patients don't breathe anymore, and they usually have a complete spinal cord injury. But that documented case, if you want to Google it, uh, is really interesting. Um, if it's I don't know the specifics as far as the CT scans and MRIs, but it was fascinating to hear even the term brought up. Yes. You got a comment on the MD who's going to transplant a head? <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> Good luck. No, no head transplanting for the. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, in back. Um, you were saying that rushing to surgery could, or at least limiting the amount of time it takes, could be very helpful. Would you say that's also true for rehabilitation, that getting started um, has some sort of benefit that maybe wait six months? Right. Actually, um, we start rehabilitation in the ICU. So as soon as we get the thumbs up from the surgeon saying that we are able to move the patient around and start uh, doing range of motion of their limbs and start working on sitting them up because their blood, their blood pressure controls are out of whack, we start right away. So we don't delay. So, you, so good question, and, and the sooner the better. And the sooner the better to move from an acute hospital to a rehabilitation hospital as well. And I'll just give a plug for Dr. Pasquale. I mean, when I started some of this research, looking back at all of our cases, her note was gold. And I could tell what her exam was and how early she saw these patients in the ICU and how detailed they were. And that's just one of the things that I just found absolutely fascinating about San Francisco General is that in some ways it's a small community of people that see these patients, but everybody is so good and so aggressive. And to see these patients early in their ICU stay where there's all these other things going on and be doing the rehab um, basically analysis um, and, and starting the rehab process is absolutely critical in these patients. I'm sorry, I have more questions. That's, that's, that's okay. okay, maybe we'll do it here and then, we, um, yeah, that's fine. I think Dr. Weston answered, but um, for Dr. Pascal, like, why did you want to pursue this Oh, good question. Um, uh, when I was in college, um, I took one of those college aptitude tests, like what I should go into when I grow up. <laughs> And it said I'd be a good YMCA director. So <laughs> that was not exactly what I had in mind. However, it, it's sort of that team approach to care and working with the team to sort of uh, move somebody towards a process and get somebody going. Um, spinal cord injury and rehabilitation really kind of is that medical, um, that medical model that I was looking for that corresponds sort of to a YMCA director. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, my question was, uh, in first aid training, when they, when they teach you CPR, 
Um, they tell you, go ahead and pound on the chest. Can you hurt the person? No, you can't hurt them. They're dead. But it sounds as if, if there's a potential spinal cord injury, maybe you can. Okay, that's, that's a great question. So, yeah, do you pound? Is it, is it safe to pound on somebody's chest um, and do CPR if... Uh, I guess it depends on the setting. Um, so most of the cardiac arrests are not trauma-related. Um, and so in most cases, people slump over or they fall down or they clutch their chest and then they have a cardiac arrest. And all of our data, um, or most of our data, I'll say, you know, those people are the most likely people to recover from CPR being done in the field. Trauma patients are actually one of these really scary group of patients that if I see the paramedics doing chest compressions on a trauma patient, when they come into the emergency department, it's all over. I mean, that it doesn't work is the bottom line. If you get to the point where your heart stops and you're a trauma patient, then you've bled out or you have a very, very severe spinal cord injury or an unbelievably bad head injury where you've herniated, just really bad stuff. So I will say for the most part, you're not going to see trauma patients that are resting. And I would say for the most part, it's probably safe unless you have a high suspicion that they had some big fall, you know, down 30 steps or something um, that you, you probably won't do more damage. And like I said, it's the ABCDs. And the reason that is important, airway, breathing, circulation, disability. And as much as I want the spinal cord to be at the top of that alphabet at the A, it's at D. And you got to take care of the airway, breathing, and the circulation first. So CPR comes above it. Uh, I'll go here, and then we'll go in the back. Right. Unfortunately, I have not seen an A move on to something incomplete where they had functional movement of their extremities, which is unfortunate and hopefully something we can change in the future. So no. I will say just to that, too, is that there's a little bit of debate when the time of the A is an A. And we're looking at that actually in our patient population. So I can see patients, and I've seen, I think, two in the last week even, that came in with uh, basically no rectal tone, no sensation, and no motor function below a certain level. But there's also, in addition to, you know, uh, there's two types of shock. And one of the types of shock is that we might not be able to tell exactly what the spinal cord injury is doing very, very early in the process. And that's one of the reasons we do these evoked potentials in the OR, because we have had cases where we have nothing on our exam, and yet we have signal in the operating room in four hours that the spinal cord is working somehow, We're just putting in 740 volts, you know, um, and try to stimulate and try to see if we can detect it. So that's somewhat helpful. We don't know what that means yet in comparison to, like, when the exam is really in it. And that's a good point. There, I think there was a case recently where I think the person, from the, from the surgical standpoint, so they see them way earlier than I do, um, day, uh, at time of injury and day one, it looked like an A. By the time I saw them at about day three, they were already a B. So there's that. It, good question. Where, that frame where, that, where it's progressing, what's going on during that very, very short period of time? But from a rehabilitation standpoint, if, if uh, by the time I see them, if they're an A, they generally stay an A. They could move on to a B, but generally not a C or a D. Uh, right here in the back. Um, what kind of rehabilitation is possible for someone who is an A and on a ventilator? 
Right. So, so if you have somebody who is uh, somebody who is ventilator dependent, um, I have a patient who uh, ventilators have gotten, by the way, so portable and so quiet. Before they used to be, you could hear it ksh, 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 like that. I have a patient who is who is ventilator dependent. I can't a I can't even see really this big old honking machine on his power wheelchair. And people used to have to speak with the vent, so they'd have to time their speech with the vent. So when the vent was blowing out, that's when they would kind of be able to, to voice because that's when the air would pass their vocal cords. And now he speaks normally without any hesitation. So there's been a lot of advances in that. The main rehabilitation for somebody who's an A is to have him understand and be able to direct care caregivers to provide care for himself. So knowing, okay, if my, my vent is doing this, what do you tell the caregiver? You, um, uh, I need to be catheterized because this is happening. This is how it's done. So it's to be able to direct the care of those around him and be educated regarding that. Also, we, they, they go through the process of proper wheelchair sitting, medications for, for bowel, bladder, spasticity, all these other things, but that's mostly it. So there aren't really We try not, yeah, we try not to. We try to get them up and around and as mobile as possible because lying prone in bed will affect their skin, their cardiovascular status, um, and also their range of motion. Yeah. One more question. One more question. Who's the lucky person? Going back here. Thank you. Um, let's say the worst happens, you're in a terrible accident and feel that terrible sensation. I mean, do you have any sort of pointers, or more realistically, you're in a terrible accident and the person next to you, you suspect has had something break? Um, what should you do besides call 911? So I'm always impressed. Um, so the question is basically the person next to you or you yourself uh, feel that you've broken your neck or broken your back, and uh, what do you do next? And um, I've been so impressed with uh, REMS providers because um, I used to, in residency, we used to basically fly in a helicopter out in the field and see what they were dealing with out in the field. And just the extrication alone, some of those photos I showed, is incredibly difficult. But it's all about avoiding any additional injury and getting somebody out of a situation and get them into a spine-neutral position. So what I say is you support the head. You find a way to support the head and try not to move them at all until somebody can arrive that actually has the ability to get them out in a safe way to where you're not going to do any other damage. That's easier said than done. There's like a million different positions that people end up in after spinal cord injury. A good friend of mine who is an emergency physician was spinal cord injured, and he was basically folded under a Range Rover um, while on his bike, and it's, he knew that he, was just, he just hurt his spine snap. So there's all these different situations that can happen, and unfortunately I can't give you specifics, but just say try to not move that head at all and just stabilize it until someone else can help you extricate them. That's going to be it. So happy to take other questions later. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.